Viewpoint on Mormonism, the program that examines the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from a biblical perspective. Viewpoint on Mormonism is sponsored by Mormonism Research Ministry. Since 1979, Mormonism Research Ministry has been dedicated to equipping the body of Christ with answers regarding the Christian faith in a manner that expresses gentleness and respect. And now, your host for today's Viewpoint on Mormonism. When the apostles were gone, was there no longer any check and balance system? Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry. And with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. We continue our look at a devotional talk given by Tad Callister of the Presidency of the Seventy at Brigham Young University on January 12, 2014. It was titled, What is the Blueprint of Christ's Church? We're looking at a comment that he made, and we were discussing this yesterday, Eric, when Tad Callister uses this illustration of the telephone game where someone says something to someone and they say it to someone behind them and goes on and on and on. And he tries to make this connection that this is how truth was lost in the early church if there were no apostles or prophets to stand there as guards to make sure it would not happen. So this is what he says. He says, So it was with the doctrine taught by the apostles as they went out to the various towns and villages. As the doctrine went from one person to another, it started to change. As long as the apostles were available, they could correct the doctrine by way of epistles or personal sermons. But when the apostles were gone, there was no longer any check and balance system, no longer any correcting hand, and soon the doctrines became distorted or lost. Now, as you mentioned, he's alluding to the great apostasy, but I think it's a self-refuting argument. When he says that the apostles could correct doctrine by way of epistles or personal sermons, my argument is they did just that. We have the Gospels, we have Paul's epistles, we have Peter's epistles. There are writings in the New Testament that address false ideas that were starting to creep among God's people, the church, in the first century. When he says we need apostles to be around all the time to keep that from happening, I would argue, wait a minute, you already said this is how they could correct the problem, and the problem was corrected Mm -hmm. by what they wrote addressing these problems. But here's the problem I have. Is he trying to tell us that every time the Mormon church has a disagreement on a local level, they all go running to the apostles to get it clarified? That's not possible. No, they get it clarified by whom? Their local ecclesiastical leader, which in this case in the Mormon church would be a bishop or perhaps even a stake president. They don't go running to the apostles every time. And what do you think that bishop or that stake president would do if there is a correction to be made? They would go to what? The written authority in the Mormon church. Well, that's what we do. So we have a way of having a check and balance, even though Tad Callister certainly isn't going to agree with that, because remember, folks, he's trying to support the concept of the Mormon organization. And it's just an argument from silence to suggest that plain and precious truths were left out or lost along the way, because we can go to very, very early sources, as far as the New Testament is concerned, to see exactly what it says. I I think as far as the Bible's 
Bible's authenticity and authority. This has been made by certain LDS scholars. For instance, BYU professor Lloyd Anderson gave credence to the historicity of the Bible. In fact, more so than most Bible scholars. Listen to what he said in 1963 in a paper called The Manuscript Discoveries of the New Testament in Perspective. He said, one can disagree with the textual assumptions behind some of the modern translations of the New Testament and still not be overly concerned with differences that are immaterial. For a book to undergo progressive uncovering of its manuscript history and come out with so little debatable in its text is a great tribute to its essential authenticity. First, no new manuscript discovery has produced serious differences in the essential story. That's important. Nothing has been found to show these lost, plain, and precious truths. This survey, he goes on, has disclosed the leading textual controversies, and together they would be well within 1% of the text. Stated differently, all manuscripts agree on the essential correctness of 99% of all the verses in the New Testament. The second great fact that such a survey demonstrates is the progress that has placed the world in possession of manuscripts very near to the time of their writing. One would have to be a student of ancient history to appreciate how much superior the New Testament is to any other book in its manuscript tradition. Now, he's a Latter-day Saint, Bill, and he says any other book. I wonder if he's even referring to the Book of Mormon, because certainly we have much more evidence as far as writings go for the New Testament than we do of the Book of Mormon. You mentioned the Joseph Smith translation. What does it give us? If plain and precious portions were left out of the Bible, and that's the context that they use, the, the Bible, you would think if Joseph Smith was to give us a correct rendering of the Bible, it would include the plain and precious parts that were missing. Where are they? For instance, when they talk about baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, if you read the Joseph Smith translation, it reads basically the same as the King James. There's not a whole lot of new information there at all. See, they're making a case, and, and I think this is where they're, they're trying to give this impression that all these things were lost out of the Bible, the apostles weren't there to try to put it all back. But think about it, folks. What they're really doing by making a case for the great apostasy, they're opening a door for them to say whatever they want. Right. When they say there was a great apostasy, plain and precious things were lost, okay, if you want to go that direction, Latter-day Saint, then prove to me that you have a list of the things that should have been there in the first place. And Anderson says you can go back to the very early manuscripts, and so that's going to be a hard thing to show when we have these very early manuscripts. I just don't think that Callister can make a good case in this. This is a great talk to give to Latter-day Saints that want to be Latter-day Saints. This is a great talk to give to young people. But those young people are going to eventually have to grow up. And they're going to have to start looking at adult arguments. I don't think that he's giving a good enough argument that will satisfy most of the really thinking Latter-day Saints that see a problem with what history really looked like in the first century. If you've been listening to us this week, you've been hearing us refer to the 17 Points of the True Church, a paper that was done many years ago. What we're saying is what Callister has done has basically rehashed the 17 Points of the True Church. And so I'm going to continue reading from Callister's paper, and he's going to talk about the fourth point of the 17 Points of the True Church, which says the true church must have the same organization as Christ's church. And that's a reference to Ephesians chapter 4. And by the way, you can see our website article, mrm.org. 
org slash blueprint church with a hyphen in between blueprint and church and you'll see all of this information on that article this is what callister says the blueprint of the new testament reveals other offices that constituted part of the organization of Christ's church bishops and he's going to give verses for each of these elders deacons evangelists meaning patriarchs and pastors, meaning such men as bishops and stake presidents who preside over a flock. The sixth article of faith of the church makes reference to this blueprint. Quote, we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth, end quote. And that's from Articles of Faith 1.6. In other words, we believe the current church of Jesus Christ should have the same organization as existed in Christ's original church, subject only to revelatory changes. Therefore, each of these offices is present in our church today. Now, maybe they have some of those titles in their church today, but does it really function the way we see in the Bible? And this is where I would object when they, for instance, talk about prophets. In Mormonism, how do they get their prophet? He has to outlive his colleagues. Right. Where do you see that in the Bible? Really, folks, where do you see anywhere in the Bible that there's this structure that a man becomes the prophet, the leader of the organized church, as the Mormons understand it, only after he is able to have better health than his colleagues, right. and he outlives all the colleagues, and he has the most seniority? We don't see a pattern like that. So when he says each of these offices is present in our day, well, that's not even totally true because they have to fudge on some of the words and they have to try to say that this word means this when we really don't see any type of New Testament connection between those two words. But still, we don't see how they become the prophet, in this case, how the person becomes a prophet of the Mormon church. Let me just, the time remaining, let's deal with elders and deacons because those are two offices in the Mormon church. If you're going to go to the Bible, you go to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. It says that Paul ordained elders in every city. So wherever there was a group of Christians called the church, elders in every city, as I had appointed thee, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. That's the description for elders. Now in Mormonism, to become an elder, you have the Melchizedek priesthood. You can be 18. Those missionaries that are sent out. Well, where is the Melchizedek priesthood in the New Testament? Do we see any mention of that outside of being connected to Jesus himself? In Hebrews? No. Yeah. We do not see anybody else connected to the Melchizedek priesthood. So when he says, hey, we're doing the same thing, no, you're not, Mr. Callister. You're really not. You're fudging on what the Bible tells us. And Bill, in 1 Timothy three eleven through 12, it instructs the wise of deacons to be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their house as well. Well, how old are deacons in the Mormon church? Twelve. They're twelve. How many wives do these deacons really have at the age of twelve? I thought you were following the same structure. Clearly, deacons in the New Testament had wives according to what we read. But yet, twelve-year-olds normally don't have wives. So how are you following the same structure? And let's go back to elders. You said that elders were only supposed to have one wife. Well, what do you do with the Mormon church during the polygamy era? Hmm. I'm sure there were a lot of elders who had more than one wife. Would that disqualify them as an elder? Look, Mr. Callister, if you're going to follow the pattern that we read of in the New Testament, stick to what it says. Don't fudge. 
And yet he is, because there were a lot of practicing polygamists who were holding the office of elder in the Mormon church in the 19th century when polygamy was flourishing. And they had those same verses to use, so consistency is needed. Well, his argument would probably be, well, see, that's why we have apostles. They can change things by revelation. And we would say, no, that's a clue that you have false doctrine creeping in a group. That's what it proves to us. It doesn't prove that that's the way God wanted it, because we would look at the written word to see how God wanted it. If you can't go to the written word, then why have the Book of Mormon? Then why have the Doctrine and Covenants? Then why have the Pearl of Great Price? They become worthless pieces of paper unless they have something that we can learn from. Like I say, he makes a case that's self-refuting when he says, well, they could write epistles and give personal sermons. Well, a lot of the personal sermons, couldn't they have been written down? I mean, couldn't they? I mean, Jesus' sermons were written down, were they not? It's self-refuting. We have the response, but because Callister wants to justify the erroneous teachings, and that's how we would view them, the erroneous teachings of his church, he has to make up rules that really do not abide according to what the New Testament says. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org, where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another viewpoint on Mormonism. Pastor, could your congregation benefit from a presentation that explains the differences between Mormonism and New Testament Christianity? MRM's Bill McKeever and Eric Johnson would be honored to come to your church. Whether it's a single crash course or a weekend symposium, hundreds of churches have benefited from their fully documented and easy-to-understand PowerPoint presentations. If you'd like to schedule MRM at your church, simply write us at contact at mrm.org. Again, that's contact at mrm.org. Dot org.